0: Listen and follow the left-wing rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team, and that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games, are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that
1: if you want to play in the Irish team.
0: Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Sachtan, an indo Time in
1: year
0: the a gesuliger markansch gorfeder e chur in uik kart lenw winterthing skilti fis turmi
1: tache dochret nach veter ara
0: igornamion un keshchen ekol
1: vien talamiginom grav orcor nractum iatukchet horin groven orcarston elist du haloges kemine fnacht goro clicks ar dukchenecher only
0: venaun find us on all The usual podcast platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Today on the Indo Daily, hijacked an Australian monk, an Irish minister, and the third secret of Fatima. What do Erlingus, Albert Reynolds, and the Vatican have in common? Well, on today's Indo-Daily, we're travelling back in time to May the 2nd, 1981, when Erlinka's flight, EI-164, should have been just an ordinary one. Until it wasn't.
0: Happy but tired, the passengers who boarded flight EI-164 for London at lunchtime yesterday finally left 2K for the British capital early this morning. For Captain Eddie Foyle and his crew, there were interviews with the French police before they headed for Dublin aboard the St Eta.
1: You see, on that flight was a passenger by the name of Lawrence Downey, Larry Downey, a former monk from Perth in Western Australia. Now, Lawrence, like a lot of people, was intrigued by the secrets of Fatima. Three messages reportedly shared by Our Lady to three young girls in 1917. Its final one still classified and known only to Pope John Paul II in 1981.
0: When we got on the plane, we sat in the first row of the smoking. And he came on, he sat beside us. He looked like a very prosperous businessman, very well-dressed, grey hair
1: and very tanned. Now, Lawrence really wanted to know that third secret, so much so that it would all become part of hijacking that flight, making international headlines and allowing then Minister for Transport Albert Reynolds to play hero for the day. Trust me, I'm not making this up.
0: They came in from the rear and the side doors. He didn't notice the lights going on in the cockpit. So they came in from behind here at him and surprised him. He didn't offer any resistance. There was no trouble. And that was it. And nobody was hurt. Nobody was hurt.
1: I'm Siobhan McGuire and today I'm joined by Sunday Independent columnist Sarah Cadden to refresh our memories on what happened. Sarah, it's May 1981, and Ireland's on shaky ground politically and economically indeed. Can you set the scene for me? It was a,
0: a difficult time. It was very economically very diff- difficult. The troubles in the north were r- raging. It was a time of great emigration. In May 1981, when this hijacking happened, You know, Bobby Sands was all over the news every day. At 17 minutes past one this morning, Mr Bobby Sands, the IRA MP for Manor, South Tyrone, died. His mother and sister were at his bedside with a priest during the final hours. Minutes later, Northern Ireland Secretary Humphrey Atkins issued a brief statement saying Bobby Sands had taken his own life by refusing food and medical attention for 66 days. And also, you know, there had been the Stardust fire in the February, which had been you know, so terribly sad, all those young lives. Here at the Stardust Club in Artane, the work of sifting through the debris has been going on all day. It seemed a quite a dark time. People were really kind of down on their uppers. And, you know, it was very difficult. It was a very different time in terms of where Ireland was, the interconnection of church and state was very, to be felt all through society. And I think in 1981, in the context of this hijacking, you also have to remember that massive elation across the country only two years previously when Pope John Paul II had visited.
1: Young people of Ireland, I love you.
0: And so that was the kind
1: of that was the country Ireland was then. And so we're in May. This is the second of May. And in the for a little bit of context and on a lighter note, that April, Books Fizz were over in Ireland for the Eurovision we were hosting, and they won with Making Your Mind Up. Yes, I think you all remember the they skirts being them off. Yes, yeah. that's it. <laughs> And so then we're coming into May and then people in Ireland were suddenly hearing about this this hijacking. And hijacking, let's remember, it was actually a bit of a thing back then because we were hearing hijacking situations in Egypt and other parts of the world. But to have it on an Irish plane, what happened, Sarah? Well, again... You know, most families, ordinary families didn't go
0: on foreign holidays. Even flying, you know, was quite exciting and an event and something that people still kind of dressed up for in uh, in those days. So there was a flight from Dublin to London and on this flight, um, they were, I think, only five minutes out of starting their descent into London. And a man went into the toilets, supposedly doused himself in petrol, came out with two small vials, he said, had cyanide in them. And over the next hours, this hijacking situation unfolded.
1: And Sarah, at the the man at the centre of all of this is a guy called Lawrence Downey, and he, uh, in a previous life, he was a Trappist monk in Rome, so clearly a religious guy, uh, a, a Catholic. And here he is on this flight from uh, Dublin to Heathrow, and he wants to send a message. What is that message? His key mission when he first the hijacking
0: began was that he had written up a new constitution for the for Iran, and he wanted the plane to divert to Iran so he could deliver this to the Iranian people. Now the plane, you know, was a Dublin to Heathrow flight. They didn't have the fuel to get to Iran, so they landed instead in a regional airport in Normandy, in France. And then once they were on the ground, he issued kind of subsequent
1: demands because clearly the Iranian plan wasn't working out. And so it's it's eight hours in total, um, this hijacking situation. But Danny has a very strange request, doesn't he? That he's very specific about a particular religious piece of knowledge that he wants to get his hands on. What is it? And what's it all about, Sarah? So apparently people who uh, had been
0: acquainted with him previously have said that he he was quite fixated on the third secret of Fatima. I think now looking back, it was one of those things that was just in the the lexicon. People, you know, if someone was keeping, there was a hot secret or, you know, something people were being very tight-lipped about, it was compared to the third secret of Fatima. Most of us didn't even know what we were talking about. But it was one of these things that was known to be absolutely unknown and unknowable perhaps. And But um, Larry Downey really wanted the third secret of Fatima to be revealed.
1: So the secrets of Fatima were a pretty big deal. They, this is where Our Lady appeared to uh, three young girls in Portugal, in Fatima, I think back in the early 1900s. And messages were imparted and uh, they and Turn told religious orders. It went all the way up to the Vatican. Basically,
0: it did. And the first two were very quickly revealed. There were three shepherd girls. Two of them died not uh, within years of the, of the Marian apparition, and they had seen the Virgin Mary, and she had communicated to them over a period of six months, always apparently on the thirteenth day of the month, and she had told them. Some took them as warnings. Now, nineteen seventeen was when the apparitions occurred. So World War One was already happening and in full effect. These secrets aren't straightforward. It isn't like, you know, Paddy down the road is gonna get a new car next week. It was they were very quite obtuse. And so you know, it's interpretations, let's say, have been put on both the first and second over the decades since. That the first was concerned to the First World War, the second was about the Second World War. Russia seems to be a really big theme through all three of the of the secrets that Russia had lost God and must be brought back and must repent. Um, so the the girl who remained Lucia, she kept the third secret. She w- became a nun uh, as an adult, and she. Um, basically said that she had spoken, you know, she had been told that the time wasn't right yet for the secret to be revealed, but she suffered some ill health in the 40s and she was kind of prevailed upon by the hierarchy of the church that like if she died with the third secret, this would be terrible. So she told the third secret, it was sealed in an envelope and it was locked away in the Vatican. Um, the, the the decision, I believe, was that it would be revealed um, at a
1: certain time or after her death, whichever you know, occurred first. And indeed, it was passed down, really, from one pope to another. Is that fair to say?
0: I think that's fair to say. In the 1960s, the late 60s, Pope Paul VI, he... Um, read it, opened the envelope, read it, and apparently sealed it up again and hid it away again. It wasn't, clearly he had decided it wasn't time, which obviously only added to the kind of mystique of this secret, which, you know, you have to think, could it ever live up to, you know, uh, how much it had been built up over the years? And then it wasn't finally revealed uh, until... 2000, by Pope John Paul II. Um, and I believe his interpretation or and some interpretations of it was that the Third Secret predicted the assassination attempt uh, on him, which occurred actually quite soon after the hijacking of the Aer Lingus plane
1: by by another guy actually who was fascinated by uh, the apparitions in Fatima as well. Um and so here we have La- Lawrence Downey on that plane. There's about 113 passengers. Um there's uh you know the, there's the pilot, the co-pilot, the um the very glamorous uh, looking air hostesses at the time and There's some brilliant footage from the RTE archives on this, Sarah. Like, if you get a chance to watch this, you should, because it gives you a glimpse, first of all, of the times when you could sit in a plane and you'd be having your smoke, um, you'd be having your cigar, you'd be having your drink. And uh, it just seemed like a very casual, easygoing affair.
0: The attention of the world's press swung to the St. Edith as the passengers, mostly in remarkably good spirits, began to disembark. First on board to greet them was Transport Minister Albert Reynolds. Yeah, and even watching that footage that you refer to, I was struck as well by how... Uh, relaxed, people were, in what they said, and how they described things, what they said about other people, on the news. So there was a really after the hijack was over, there was a, there was a fascinating interview with a woman who'd been on the plane with her daughter, and she said that they had. Sat, they sat in the first row of smoking, which by itself is, is pretty hilarious. And this man sat beside them, a prosperous looking businessman, she thought, with a lovely tan. And he had a brandy and a cigar when the when the cabin crew came around. And then he went into the toilet and apparently doused himself in petrol and came out with the cyanide. But she didn't appear to um, hold it against him. Her first impression seemed to hold. And really that kind of there was quite, everyone seemed to have a quite benevolent um, attitude about the whole thing, um, including Albert Reynolds, the then uh, Minister for Transport, who was sent over there to sort this out. We sent Dr Bill Mulcahy on the flight and the nurse on the flight to London, just in case there was any other passengers who might want attention. But there's absolutely delight all round. OK, Deja. Thanks very much. OK, bye-bye.
1: They say that not all heroes wear capes, Sarah, but you would never have thought of the then transport minister, Albert Reynolds, stepping in to save the day. But it's kind of exactly what happened, isn't it?
0: And, you know, there was a certain panache to, you know, the way he carried himself through it. And, you know, you say all superheroes don't wear capes, but all the superheroes in this story appeared to smoke a cigarette. He's on the phone to the shock at 1. point giving him a bit of a lowdown he's a cigarette in one hand the phone in the other and there's something very um it's almost like a, like an old fashioned film um but Albert flew over and the big concern was this was an Aer Lingus plane this was a state plane uh you know it it, it was really important that there was no international incident on this plane and ultimately um Larry Downey uh, allowed some people off off the flight, and really, once those doors were opened, um, there was a plan in place. Albert Reynolds said he knew, even on his way over from Dublin, that there was a plan in place that they would attempt to board the plane and take charge of the situation without any injuries. Obviously, but that um, this this was going to happen at some point. So once the doors were open, the the French police. Uh, got on board
1: and he he gave up without a fight. And this is the thing, Lawrence Downey, whatever he may have been, he he, he was a fairly decent man as hijackers go, Sarah, because as you say, he was letting some women and children out. I think there were some instances where um, I think some kids weren't feeling well and had to be let off the plane. Yeah, I mean, they were on the plane for hours. I mean, you can imagine how hot it was
0: and you know, people were worried and quite stifling and it can't have been pleasant for them at all. Um, But, I mean, Larry Downey, there appears to have been fraud charges against him already and he was a guy who had got himself in some trouble. He had also been ejected from the Trappist monks for punching his superior in the face. But he didn't, I don't, people on the plane did not seem to feel physically threatened by him you know the the later the RT made a documentary about it in later years and um, subsequently the journalist Sam Smith spoke about how he had he had gone over and he coincidentally had interviewed Larry Downey in Ireland shortly before the hijacking occurred. It has been reported that Albert Reynolds, someone said to him, you know, are you going to tell him the third secret of Fatima? And he said, but sure, no one knows it. That's the whole point. No one knows the
1: third secret of Fatima. Liam Collins, our colleague, um, once told me, and I, I hope he won't mind me reiterating it to you, that Albert Reynolds had a great joke, uh, you know, if you were at political dinners and uh, on foot of what had happened here. And somebody might say, Albert, what was the third secret of Fatima? And he would respond something along the lines of, uh, oh, the bill for the Last Supper. It was this kind of joke that followed him around. But on the day, look, he did go in there and he did get it all sorted. Yeah, and with a certain
0: panache, I have to say, looking at the, uh, at the archive footage, there was a, a flair to the whole thing, right down to, the, you know, the air hostesses with their hairs in a, in a hair in a kind of French pleat and their beautiful um, uniforms. The captain had kind of great hair and,
1: you know, it was all there was a certain class to it. Yeah. And so what happened uh Lawrence Downey the- he he was like he was
0: sentenced over this. He had committed a crime and he did serve over a year in prison. He then uh, he then he did serve 5 years in prison and he um later moved to Australia. Um I think he 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 may have continued to live a slightly colorful existence um, but it's not known what became of him
1: I mean he originally he was from Western Australia from Perth had come over to Ireland it transpired after as you said he'd been booted out uh, of the the monks in Rome and um, came over to, I think it was County Clare where he settled. Uh, That wasn't going down too well for him. So he decided then he'd get on that flight and head over to London. But very interesting, Sarah, uh, in the state papers from 1981, uh, which would have been disclosed like decades later, um, we would learn that uh, Lawrence Downey... Had written a letter to the then Taoiseach, Garrett Fitzgerald, and it read I went to Ireland thinking she was an oppressed underdog. I tried to help in the hope that I might be accepted in the land of my ancestors, but they hated me without cause and told me not to interfere. So that's Lawrence Downey summing up Ireland. Yeah. And
0: I think people who spoke to him for the documentary that was that was made some years later said that he was a, a really nice guy and great fun and very friendly and gentle, uh, but that he was 95% a great guy, but 5% of him was just obsessed with The Third Secret of Fatima.
1: Sarah, at the end of all of this, did Lawrence Downey, or indeed any of us, ever find out what The Third Secret of Fatima is? The Third Secret was revealed
0: in 2000 um, under Pope John Paul II and um, Cardinal Ratzinger, as he was at the time who became Benedict XVI, he wrote about it and, and, and was quite sanguine, I think, you know, about the fact that these things are so massively open to interpretation and, you know, it has... There has been the interpretation that it concerned the attempted assassination of John Paul II. But Ratzinger did point out that really, once the third secret was finally revealed, it couldn't be anything but a disappointment. The specific readings, it has been kind of pointed out and he kind of pointed out that a lot of them were retrospective, things that had happened the Great Wars, um, communism, the assassination attempt on John Paul II, and that that's the benefit of hindsight.
1: And my thanks to Sarah Cadden, Sunday Independent columnist, for joining me today. I'm Siobhan McGuire, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by myself, researched by JJ Clark, with sound by Niall McMonagall, Archive clips from OTE, BBC, ITV and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.